The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Merry Christmas. I'm for some of you. Um, I probably won't see you tomorrow night, so Merry Christmas. I do. My name is Justin. If this is your first time here at Sacred City, I want to welcome you. A um, couple things real quick to get off, uh, just right off the top here. Number one, we have a Sacred City app. If you have a smartphone, a tablet, an iPad, any of those things, we have a Sacred City app that you can get all of our past sermons. You can get onto the city, which is our social networking site. You can see announcements there. Um, you can give online. There's all kind of stuff right there. So if you have a, a smartphone, check out Sacred City. Um, just search for Sacred City. It'll come up. Also, you can follow along with us. Um, if you have version, the Bible app, you can follow along with us in our service today. And, uh, for those of you who will be in town tomorrow night, we're going to have an 8 p.m. Christmas Eve candlelit service right here. Um, for If you have kids, the kids will be singing Joy to the World, or they'll be attempting to sing Joy to the World. My, my daughter just invents lyrics as she goes most of the time until it gets to Joy to the World. Uh, they're going to be wearing their pajamas, so it's going to be a fun, it's a family-friendly service. There's no child care. Everybody will be in here. If you've got a baby, don't worry about it. You, the balcony's always free to go up there and, and hang out if, if you think they're bothering anybody, but they're not. Um, I always think it's kind of funny this time of year when, you know, if you've ever had a, a kid, a baby screaming in church, it's inevitable that somebody gives you the glare, right? And it's kind of like that unspoken, get the child out of here. And it, 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 but it, listen, we don't want to do that at Sacred City. And it just, it weirds me out at this time of year because our, our God became that little screaming baby, right? Like, would, you, would somebody please take this baby out of here? And that's Jesus. He just left, Right. So we, we want to be family friendly. We, we love, we do love family. We, we believe the Bible says to be fruitful, and multiply, enjoy children. And um, so we want to create that environment tomorrow night. So there's going to be, um, we're going to show a little, a kid's video from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Kids are going to sing. Let them wear their pajamas. I might wear my footies. I don't know. We'll find out. Uh, but it's going to be a great night. So come enjoy that, enjoy that with us. 8 p.m. tomorrow night. So you can get stuffed with family goodies and then come out and enjoy it with us um, as, your, as your church family. And um, it's my privilege this morning, so I have had three weeks off from preaching, all right? First time since we planted the church, um, I'm ready to explode right now, so I will be speaking tomorrow night, but it's just going to be like 10 minutes, so maybe. <laughs> but uh, I'll be ready to go next week. Uh, so it's, it's on my joy and privilege to have um, Sam is going to be bringing the word to you this morning. Sam is our first ever pastoral intern. Um, he graduated from UNI, moved back here to the Quad Cities. He's been on mission and in community with us for, for over a year. And uh, we've been praying over him, pouring into him. He's been maturing and growing. He's in Porterbrook, uh, year two of Porterbrook. And God's been doing great things in his life and in his marriage. And uh, it's just been, an excite, it's been exciting to be near him, to be around him, to be a part of seeing God work and move in his life. And now, over the next couple of years, we're going to test his calling, see if he's called to be a pastor, see if he's called to be a church planner. We want to be a church um, that doesn't just talk about church planning. A lot of churches out there just talk about it. We're, we're a church that believes in raising up young men and sending them out to plant churches. Um, we, we do that through missional communities, and we do that through, through churches. So Sam's one of these guys that we're pouring into. We're believing that God's got a calling on his life uh, to serve the church in some capacity, whether as in a pastoral role or as a church planner. We're going to see how that goes. So, um, we're going to pray. I'm going to pray over Sam real quick, and then we're going to stand up for the reading of God's Word. And Veronica is going to come and read that for us this morning, and uh, Sam's going to bring the Word. Father, I thank you 
I thank you for my brother Sam. I thank you for the giftings that you've given him. I thank you for the calling that you've placed on his life. I thank you for the humble heart that he has before you. A heart that doesn't want to jump up and say, yeah, yeah, I'll preach. But a heart that will respond when asked to. So I thank you for this. I ask that you would give him confidence in your word. Confidence in the gifting and the calling that you've placed on him. And a trust, a confident trust in your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray also that you would anoint our ears to hear the word, that you would anoint our hearts to receive it and to believe it, and you would activate that faith that you've placed in us to respond to the preaching of God's word this morning. This is all for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning. first reading is from the book of Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And the majesty of the name of the Lord his God And they shall dwell secure. For now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The second reading is from the book of Ephesians. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the word. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, oh boy. Well, I want to first off thank Justin uh, for the opportunity um, to preach. When he asked me, I jumped on it because it's something that I've always kind of wanted to do. Um, So you guys have a front row seat to the first time that I've ever preached in front of a congregation. So with that, um, when I found out, yeah, (laughs) when I found out what I would uh, be preaching on, um, things changed a little bit. Justin said, oh, uh, I think you should... I think we're going to have you preach on peace. And it's like, uh, my first sermon, my nerves are going to be through the roof. I'm going to be shaking up here the whole time. And I'm supposed to tell everyone about peace. It's like, this is, this is very ironic. So, <clears throat> and, and I, I realize that I've got some, some big shoes to fill here. Because as you guys have been um, listening to Justin preach over the last year, um, you notice that his sermons are, are anything but short usually. So I realize that I've got somewhere between an hour and, and two, maybe three hours to fill. So I was, thinking, <laughs> I was thinking about what it is that I could do to fill up that time. So 
you know, going through my head, I, I was thinking maybe, um, maybe I could do what I, what I call bumper sticker preaching, you know, like find some cool little catchphrases, bundle up, send them home, kind of find some, some scripture to work into them. But I, you know, that's just, that's not cool. That's, that's, that's not what I want to do. So I was like, well, maybe, maybe if I swing, swung to the other side of that, I would maybe do like, uh, grab my Bible, highlight any passage that said something about peace and just stand up here and read it to you. And when I'm done, drop the microphone and walk off and that's it. <laughs> cause, cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, peace in the Bible that they talk about. But as I began to go in my Bible and explore, um, <clears throat> peace, like the, this word peace, I realized that it's, it's a word that requires a lot of unpacking. It, it requires a lot of very um, precise defining and, and a lot of polishing to the, to the definition. So, um, and, and I realized that each of us kind of have, we have our own version of peace. Like if I say peace, something comes to your mind automatically. You think maybe peace would be my kids going to bed and staying in bed. That would, that would be peaceful, right? <clears throat> Some of you think peace would be staying out of earshot from my boss so he doesn't pile on more tasks to do. I can just kind of, you know, slip below the radar. For others, peace might be um, that, that sibling rivalry that you've dealt with all your life. That thing finally be put into rest. You know, college kids, you're, you're in a season of peace right now. We're on, we're on Christmas break. So you're living it up, but, but three or four weeks, five weeks for some of you, you want peace back, right? This peace would be a lack of schoolwork. For others of you who have this, this bizarre um, neighbor who, who keeps his grass exactly an inch and a half tall or two inches tall, peace would be avoiding contact with him to, to avoid discussing whose turn it is to trim the shrub that's hanging over the property line. And for me, I, so just, I came on staff here at Sacred City about two months ago. Um, but before that, I was a car salesman. I worked at Green Buick GMC selling cars. So uh, peace for me was selling cars to make an ends meet, to, to make a living, so I would have financial peace. So if I, thought if, I thought if I sold enough cars, I would find peace. And for others, peace could be defined as some sort of inner peace, a matter of being okay with myself. These things that we classify as peace, the, the natural things that our mind goes to, they're temporary, they're circumstantial, and they're fleeting. And some of our efforts to find peace, while we, while we, while we f- search for peace, the, those things that we're searching for peace for end up backfiring on us. So if I go to work and, I, and I'm trying to maintain peace with my boss, I work hard, I, I stick my nose down, I, I go to the grind... You know, and I'm trying to achieve some sort of peace with my boss, but in the meantime, I'm sacrificing the peace that, that's been achieved in my family. And so if, if these are our definitions of what it means to find peace, then our definitions of peace are cheap. And what I mean by that is that we're settling for a definition of peace, for some concept of peace that doesn't really last long. It, it breaks down, it'll wear out, it expires, it's poor quality, it's temporary and it's fleeting. And really, if you think about it, it's interesting to what lengths we go to to, to maintain and achieve this, this cheap peace, right? We inflate our savings account, our 401ks, to have financial peace just to find out that we've got some big bills we need to spend it on. 
we change our pass in the supermarket to avoid that one person who we just don't want to talk to. We have security guards in our airports, in our courtrooms, and now in some of our schools across the country. We put up eight-foot fences in our backyards and put a, a dozen different deadbolts on our doors in order to keep peace within our property line. Although while some of those things are good things, some of those are good safety measures, good precautions, those things cannot guarantee our peace. My goal for this morning is to have you convicted that as long as your search for peace is apart from God, the place in which you are going to for peace is not capable of offering you the peace that your soul craves. Uh, I'm going to pray for you. You pray for me real quick. Father God, I thank you for uh, this morning. I thank you for drawing us into your presence. God, I thank you that you are before us, that you have called us to yourself, Lord God, and you have given us your word. And in your word are promises. God, and, and I pray that, that our hearts would cling to those, that our, our hearts would be, gravitate towards those, and our hearts would gravitate towards you. And so, God, as we unpack peace this morning, I pray that your spirit uh, would be working in the hearts of those who are listening. God, that your spirit would guide my tongue, that, that, Lord God, that as I speak, it would be all of you and none of me. Father God, we ask these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, peace is a freedom of civil, civil disturbance, a freedom from disquieting oppressive thoughts or emotions, or harmony in personal relations. Now, in our culture, there are a couple of primary generalizations of what peace looks like. And each of them has an exclusive claim on what it looks like to maintain and achieve this peace. The first one is what I call the hippie rock star peace, right? This is, this is the peace where, where we have rock concerts and global rallies in order to convince everyone that we need peace in the nation states. No more wars, right? The fix, uh, the fix to this is, is everyone putting their preferences and their convictions aside and coexisting together, right? And with this, with this mentality of peace, all of the, the conflicts of peace, all the hindrance to peace are external, right? We just need to address the issue. We need to suppress it. We need to ignore it. We need to look past it. And quite frankly, that's not working out so well. The, uh, I think a couple weeks ago, Anthony and, and cohort was uh, sharing with us how the U.S. troops have over 80 different bases in different countries to maintain some sort of peace, to, to keep from, from war bursting out. So obviously, war is at the doorsteps. Maybe we haven't had enough rock concerts or global rallies to achieve this peace yet, right? Maybe we just need some more, more rock concerts. That'll do it. But what if we had world peace? What if there were no wars raging? What if violence wasn't threatening us at all? Would that make your marriage less challenging? Would that bring peace to the difficulty that you face at work? Would that make missional community life less confrontational? Does this solve the deepest problems and longings of our human hearts? The answer is no, it wouldn't. Because the truth is there's something wrong with each and every one of us. Something personally wrong with all of us. 
And so when you swing on the other side of the pendulum from this hippie rock star piece, you get this new age psychotherapist uh, piece. This is, this is peace where you find peace within yourself. It's a, a peace um, in self-fulfillment, in self-understanding, uh, a peace of finding self-worth and things will be better for you. Right? This, this new age psychotherapist piece places all of the hindrances of peace on the inside. You just have to come to terms with the identity that you've created for yourself. You just got to come to terms with it. You've got to, this, this is who I am. I, I accept it and move on. So if you're a victim, it's a matter of, you're right, I'm a victim. I, now I've got to deal with it. Now I've got to live with it. That's what I am. Or if you're an alcoholic, you just got to come to, come to terms with that. I'm an, I'm an alcoholic and that's what I'll be forever. And, and I've got to find peace in that. Or... You know, for some of us, maybe it's not, not anything that grandiose, but it's, it's becoming okay with my character flaws and just being okay with it, coming to terms with it. The idea behind this is, is so, so it's on a very individualistic basis, but the, the idea behind this is if a mass of people would have this uh, revelation, this inward revelation, that it would spread. Okay, that, that there's, there's really no, no putting peace aside. Wars would still rage. But as long as we as individuals are seeking peace within ourselves, we would find it. And, and eventually, this world would come to peace. But how long do you think it would take for the whole world to come to terms with themselves? How long do you think it would come to take to the realization that peace is on the inside and, and completely stop all conflict? And what if, what if everyone in the world except for one person had that? There would still be tension between everyone else and that one person. You see, it's, it's nearly impossible. It is impossible. But if we did have that, would that make the world any more peaceful? Would conflict be erased between nations? Now, these are, these are the definitions that our culture gives us. Um, and, and quite honestly, they're, they're too shallow. They don't, they're not adequate in defining what peace is, what true peace is like. So, as Christians, we rightfully turn to the Bible for peace. Now, peace isn't a, uh, a shallow topic. It's not a narrow topic. It's not lightly mentioned. Um, it's not an overlooked thing. If you search the word peace... On BibleGateway.com, you would have 361 hits come up on the ESV Bible in the Old and the New Testament. Now, the crazy thing is that if you were to look at the Old Testament alone, the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom, is used 237 times. And so you can see this word being used 237 times to uh, our equivalent to peace. Uh, our definition of peace rests on this biblical understanding of the, t- the Hebrew term shalom. And so this is what the theological dictionary of the Old Testament says about shalom. It says, shalom has a semantic breadth that cannot be accurately explained by one word in the English language. So the word peace doesn't do it, right? It's... The, the, word, the English word peace doesn't completely um, bring to the surface everything that shalom, that the original authors of the Bible intended. The author of this uh, uh, theological dictionary of the Old Testament takes a stab at it, and he uses more than one word. He says, 
the word shalom means that no matter how we try to explain... Uh, oops, 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 oops. Oh. The word shalom is defined as being... Uh, it's a state of being unimpaired and unthreatened. It's a state of ease and security. Of felicity and wholeness in the broadest sense. Okay, process that. It's a, it's a, it is, I'll read it again. It's a state of being unimpaired and unthreatened. A state of ease and security, of felicity and wholeness in the broadest sense. So if we just kind of uh, sum that up, it's, it's a sense of wholeness, right? A sense of wholeness that everything is, is working together. This means that if we understood what shalom is, there would be uh, all, the, all the pieces of the puzzle would work together right. We would have um, political, military, relational, business, environmental uh, social, economic peace between all things, that all of those strands of what makes up our world would be functioning perfectly together. Now, Tim Keller used the ima- uses the image of, of a, a sweater to kind of give us uh, a view of what the shalom is. He says it's like a sweater, okay? We're, it's Christmas time. We're seeing a lot of these ugly sweaters rise to the surface. Uh, our missional community had a, a Christmas party last Wednesday, and uh, I think that we did a really good job at, at well representing um, what it means to have an ugly sweater. So if you think of, of that ugly sweater, um, that, that sweater, even though it's ugly, is composed of millions of different fibers. Okay, millions of different fibers are, that are all intertwined, and they're connected together in a way that creates a fully functional, sweat, fully functional sweater. Right, so and if, we, if we zoom out and view it on the, on the grand scheme of, of the world, we would see that the, the fibers are political, military, relational, environmental. Um, we would have some sort of, uh, of God, like strand of God that would make all things right. And so uh, peace happens when all the facets of well-being are working together in a way God intended to create shalom, this, this, this sense of peace. Shalom is a sense of, of utter harmony and uh, of fullness between all things. And, and this concept of shalom isn't a created thing. It's not, it's not something that, that uh, people just put together and, and ran with it. Shalom existed within God. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before any of creation existed, perfectly, perfectly displayed shalom, this wholeness, within themselves. There was a sense of wholeness in every aspect. And from their perfect display of wholeness, uh, Alec gave us the, the, uh, uh, the vision of, of creation bursting forth, much like as man and wife come together, they, they make babies. So creation bursts forth from the Trinity. And we see how in the garden, God modeled and created uh, the, the garden to, to reflect his beauty and his mystery, his wholeness, his peace of shalom. And so our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they knew shalom because they got to experience it in a holistic sense. Vertically, with God, they got to experience shalom horizontally with one another. And environmentally, they got to experience shalom on the earth. For uh, you Northwest Missional Community people who we have talked about triperspectivalism before, there's a little triperspectivalism for your pocket. So we'll get there. Um, 
Adam and Eve knew vertical shalom with God. They knew what it was like because they had an untainted understanding of God. He was their creator. They were his creation. He was good, and good, right, and perfect, and he did all things good, right, and perfect. They knew Adam and Eve had a, had a proper understanding of their own identity because they had an untainted understanding of who God's identity was, of who God was. And so they had nothing, there was nothing hindering their intimacy with God. They would walk with God in the cool of the day. They would obey God because they understood that God had their best interests in mind. And they got to experience the sense of vertical shalom with God. Okay, now on the horizontal plane, they got to experience shalom with one another. They got to experience the perfect marriage. Now, how many of you would kill for the perfect marriage? Who wants a perfect marriage? Adam and Eve had it. They blew it, but we'll get there. They loved and served each other as God intended. They had perfect relational peace. He was the head and she was his helper. They were naked and unashamed. And then they also, on top of those things, on top of the vertical and the horizontal, they got to experience this environmental peace. Um, cult, God gave them a cultural mandate to fill and subdue the earth. He gave them a task, but it was enjoyable. It was, it was a task that, that reflected God's uh, work, uh, reflected God's handy, handymanship, his craftsmanship. And as far as we can read in the first couple chapters, there hasn't been any natural disasters. And as far as we know, it's sunny with a high of 75 all day long, Right? And think of this, like environmental peace, no natural disasters, but then animals literally walked in front of Adam as he named them, right? And he did it as that bear walked by. He wasn't scared. He didn't think he was going to get eaten. He didn't think he was going to get trampled by that elephant. He lived in, in peace with God's creation. And so uh, from, <clears throat> we can see from a biblical standpoint, from a biblical view, shalom is peace, is, is wholeness, on all three of these fronts, on vertical, horizontal, and within the earth, within, within the environment. And this, all of this is honky-dory. This is great. The garden, the story, the first two chapters of the Bible are killer. It sounds awesome, right? The best. Sunny with the highest 75. But then something happened. Something happened to strain the shalom, to, to destroy the shalom that God had created. There was something hindering this, this sense of, of peace in the fullest sense. Now, Satan, being uh, very cunning and sneaky, slithered his way into the garden. Oh, well, at this point he had legs, so he, he, he sneaked his way into the garden. And he convinced Adam and Eve that there was a greater wholeness, there was a better version of shalom outside of God. And so Adam and Eve kind of, they, they're like, well, they kicked around a little bit. You think maybe, well, we'll give it a shot. We, yeah, what, what do we have to lose? So Adam and Eve took the fruit from the forbidden tree and they ate it. And the moment they did, that shalom escaped them. They lost it. They had perfect relationship with God, with each other and the earth. And they blew it. It went right down the drain. And so now with the absence of shalom... If shalom is wholeness, uh, we're, we're introduced to death and decay, which I think is the opposite of shalom. 
If shalom is wholeness, the fullest sense of peace, the fullest sense of everything working together right, I think the opposite of that would be death and decay. And so sin, as, as the author of Romans tells us, the wages of sin is death. And so death, decay, and sin enter into this world. The Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion against God distorted, shattered, and prevented shalom between man, God, with man and God, man and man, and man and the earth. And we see how the sin works against their relationship with God because the shalom they had has been dis- distorted, shattered, and prevented between them and God. So Adam and Eve, as soon as they ate the fruit, they realized they did something wrong, right? They, they fled. They hid behind the bushes. And God came down for his walk because God was used to walking with them in the cool day. God came down for his, his daily walk, and he cried out to them, where are you? What, what have you done? They're still hiding in the bushes. They're a little scared. They don't know what to do. And then, and then God asks Adam, what happened? What did you do? And, and Adam says, he responds <clears throat> by blaming God. He, he was, somehow it's God's fault. He, he thinks, he goes, <clears throat> that woman that you gave me, he pins this on God, right? There's, there's this uh, distortion. There's tension between man and God. It's because they no longer had a right understanding of themselves and of God. They had a tainted view of their creator. When they had once experienced intimacy with God, intimacy, shalom, peace in the fullest sense with God, they no longer had those walks in the cool of the day. And then we move to the vertical plane, where we see how sin put um, stress between man and woman. He... Sin distorted, shattered, and prevented shalom between man and woman. And Adam, after he first blames God, moves on to blaming her. He goes, that woman that you gave me. And then he maybe, I think maybe he retracted his words there because you gave me. And he realized I'm talking to God. And he goes, it was her fault. She did it. And so there's this tension between them. The perfect marriage went right down the drain. And it's a shame because we only had two chapters to see what the perfect marriage was like. So we don't really even get a great snapshot of what it was. So in this sin, Adam, men, listen to this, Adam would become sloth-like in leading his wife. And women, listen to this, Eve would want to rule over her husband. This, this balance that which God created has now been distorted and it shifted. They became selfish, they became impatient, and hostile towards one another. I imagine in the garden, there was quite a bit of equivalence to hair dryer throwing and door slamming, right? Because after all, Adam and Eve were fully responsible for the downward spiral that humanity would begin to take. Sin even distorted, shattered, and prevented shalom between man and God. Oh, excuse me, with man and his environment. We already said that. Between man and his environment, right? From that moment on, God puts a curse on the earth and roses grow thorns now. The, what was once a beautiful plant, a beautiful flower, now has this rugged, uh, pointy, prickly thorn on it that, that kind of takes away some of its beauty. Thistles began to shoot up in the garden which Adam was supposed to tend to. His work got more difficult. Earthquakes, tornadoes, wildfires, hurricanes were all products of the fall. And I myself, 
I'm not a huge fan of snow. Actually, I, I hate snow. And I'm convinced that snow is a product of the fall. I'm convinced. And if, you, if you're saying, no, 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 Sam, snow is great. The reason why you like snow is because you're a sinner. That's why. As a result, this upsetting of shalom, this perfect wholeness, was traded for death and decay. Man, they had it good. Adam and Eve had it good, and they traded it for death and decay. Where in the garden, there was a completeness. Where there was wholeness, there was now an absence. And as we continue to look through the rest of the Bible up to the present day, we see how this brokenness escalates. We see it vertically. We see man walking away from God, going further and further away from the Garden of Eden, the place where man was once intimate with God. And then, whew, man starts making his own versions of God. It starts with golden calves, and then it goes to the, the, uh, idol, I, the idol of power, money, beauty, self, and, then, and now it, it translates into football stadiums and concert arenas. And the list goes on and on. We even see man going from acknowledging that there was a God to completely denying the fact. They're saying, no, there's, there's no God. It's just survival of the fittest. We, we came from a big bang. We came from something. Right? There's no God. God was not part of it. And then we see how it escalates on the horizontal plane. Adam and Eve's strained marriage now became the norm for all of their kids. So they experienced, these kids experienced a strained marriage, and that, that became the model for their marriage. And then Cain goes on to kill Abel. And then Cain's descendant, Lamech, kills a dude for punching him in the face, right? And then Joseph's brothers sell him as a slave to the Egyptians. And the Israelites are turned into slaves. The whole, the whole nation of the Israelites are turned into slaves under Pharaoh's rule. And the hostility between the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael, build into a war over the holy city, the holy land. Now let's fast forward a few thousand years to where we're at now. We see wars becoming more bloody and more damaging than ever before. There's, there's nuclear warfare. Racism, social prejudice, economic elitism, oppression, genocides, corruption of governments, all emerge as products of this fall. Broken families, right? We have broken families now as product of the fall. Kids are growing up without a mom or without a dad. And then abuse happens. We see emotional abuse. We see physical and sexual and spiritual abuse. These are all products of the fall. And, and uh, a week or two back, we saw how wicked men enter into public places with firearms and destroy the lives of people for no reason. And environmentally, things obviously haven't gotten any better. We just had snow the other day. We still live in a reality <clears throat> that a storm could come upon us and destroy everything that we've created. Tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, these are all unstoppable realities that we live with in this world because of the fall. Our resources are thinning out. The rainforest, our coal and oil supplies are draining. People are still getting eaten by sharks, alligators, and bears. 
right? There's a reason why your wife screams bloody murder when she sees that spider in the shower. There's a reason why I don't like mice. <clears throat> Work is still difficult, right? Like we come home and we're stressed. It's, it's difficult. If you're parenting, it's difficult. The ground is hard to tend to, right? We spill our sweat. We spill our blood and our tears over the work that we've committed to. And really, a lot of us become slaves to this work, right? It becomes our master. If we look back to the book of Micah, we can relate to what the people uh, uh, that the, the prophet are speaking about are experiencing. If you read the whole book, you can see the reality of this death and decay between man and God, man and man, and man and his environment. There is clearly a lack of shalom. These people, these Israelites, were longing for peace because they too, like us, heard the story of the garden where there was peace. There was one time a wholeness between God, between man, and between the earth. Micah, in chapter 1, tells us how God and man's relationship is broken and strained. He says, let the Lord God be a witness against you. In chapter 2, he shows us the, the decay between man and man. He said, they, those who do evil, oppress a man and his household. And then he even alludes to a time of great disaster between man and the environment, where man's toiling over the ground will not bring forth the produce that he was hoping for. And in the midst of this, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this death and decay, the Israelites are still longing for shalom. Because, because they have been designed to exist in it. Like their heart is naturally wired and naturally drawn towards the shalom. And we see how things still aren't going well. There's still pain, there's still oppression, there's death and decay. But then from Micah, uh, the prophet, a word of hope comes out. He says, there's a ruler coming. He's coming forth from of old, from ancient of days. And he will be a shepherd and he will tend to his flock in the strength of the Lord. The people, his flock, will be dwelling securely. And then he says, this ruler... This ruler that they're waiting for, this ruler that they're, they're longing for to bring uh, shalom, he himself will be their shalom. He himself will be their peace. <clears throat> Give me a break here, hold on. It's easy, it's easier for us to think that what happened over 2,000 years ago what happened in the, in, in the book of Micah isn't really relevant to us now. You say, Sam, there's no way that those Israelites and I could be desiring and longing for the same thing. I would say, au contraire. Because you, much like, much like those Israelites, were created in the likeness and image of God. You are naturally drawn towards this idea of peace. You are pursuing it whether you realize it or not. But we want a quick fix. We want a quick fix on this quest for peace. We get impatient waiting for God. Even though we have the prophets before us, and, the, and even the New Testament 
to tell us about where to find our peace. We get impatient waiting for God to bring the full manifestation of peace. So we try to find a path that will offer us a quick fix to this peace. Like I said before, we were designed to exist in peace. We are longing for it. We are all on a quest to find it. And on that quest to find peace, we find these cheap substitutions for what God wants to offer us. They're, they're cheap. They're, they're inadequate. They are a false gospel, and it's a false sense of peace. It's, it's merely an illusion. What we're striving for when our peace is outside of God is just an illusion. So, a couple of things that we try to do, uh, common things in our sin, that we try to do to uh, achieve peace, um, on the vertical level, we have religion versus rebellion. Religion versus licentiousness. Okay? And so I I gave these, my wife and I kind of went through and gave these people titles. So, on the religious side, there are these religious nuts. There are the people who try to earn their good standing with God. They, they follow the list. They read the right books. They do the right things. They say the right things. They go the right places. They try to find favor with the Lord in the things that they do. They try to achieve peace through their own deeds. And, and the thing with that is that, that if someone is, is this religious nut because they, they, they feel like they, they've done the right things, it, it inflates them with pride. And that pride makes it difficult for them to relate to those sinners. Like, they, they put themselves on their own little platform. And we see this, we see glimpses of this in, in how they say things like, well, I, I did it, why can't you? I pulled myself up by the bootstraps, I found the right things to do, why can't you? And we see how this kind of plays out in missional community when people start handing out advice rather than relating to people on the heart level, right? This heart level that we're sinners saved by grace. That even even in my good attempts at righteousness, even in my failures, that you and I, we're the same. We're sinners saved by grace. And then we swing to the other side of the, the pendulum. We've got the rebellious people. These are the people who their version of peace is saying that they don't need peace at all. That they don't have a need for any sort of vertical peace. They try to ignore the fact that there's a tension between them and God altogether. They convince themselves that no one can judge them. You know, I do my own thing. I march to the beat of my own drum. You know, I go with the wind. Right? And within that group, this is scary. Within that group of people, we have these rebellious Christians. These people who got saved once at a youth rally way, way back, and they're familiar with this thing of grace. So they go on living in their sin. These are people who who continue to go to the bar, get drunk. They do stupid things. They break the law. These are people who, uh, boyfriend and girlfriends who are living together. These are people who are continuing to live in sin because they say, oh, there's grace, right? Like, there's grace. Grace grace has it. I I can keep living this life. I have no need for repentance because grace, right? But that's, that's, not, that's not the true form of grace. Grace comes to us in the form of repentance as well. And then we see how we try to seek, um, how we try to seek peace on the horizontal level. Um, there, there, it's once again this religion versus uh, 
rebellion, religion versus licentiousness. Uh, my wife has, has titled these people um, the clean team, and this one's her, her pride and joy. This is the surface-level schmucks, right? Patton Prendon, Rebecca Schmidt, 2012. <clears throat> and both of these, it's very important for us to see that both of these attempts at, at manifesting peace on the, surface, or on, the, on the horizontal level are all superficial, and they're simply an illusion, the clean team, these people who are on the, on the religion side, these people are saint-focused. They believe that peace happens when everybody has their own life figured out, right? You just present the best, put your best foot forward. They are drawn to people who are similar to them. Like, they, they ignore the fact that there's something wrong with them. They put up these walls. I, I'm fine. You know, I'm, I got it. This is great. Bless the Lord. But as soon, and we find as soon as, as someone's um, filth, their sins start surfing, surf, surfacing, these um, religious people, these, um, the clean team, bolt, head for the door. They see as soon as someone's sin is coming up, they're out of here, right? This, this shows itself. If, if, if this, this person on the clean team gets hurt, if someone um, sins against them, They'd rather ignore it altogether and just take off. And we see some examples of this in missional community. We see someone who shares their story or an intimate piece of of information with the the missional community that's laced with hurt and with anger from being sinned against. And on top of that, the same person is dealing with the drama of their own sins that they have committed. The clean team person will immediately put distance between them and that sinner. And, and this is their, their attempt at creating peace. They, they stiff arm them, right? There's no way to love someone if you're giving them the stiff arm. There's no way to find peace in that. They, this, this clean team doesn't want to walk out faith and repentance with this person because it's simply too messy. It will disturb their peace. And then as we float to the rebellious side, the licentious side, the, the surface-level schmucks, patent pending, Rebecca Schmidt, 2012, these people are more sinner-focused. They think peace happens when we just learn to coexist, when we put our convictions and our preferences aside and just tolerate one another. Right? These are the people who have those coexist bumper stickers on their car. Just build up tolerance, coexist, learn to get along with each other, put your convictions aside. They're more concerned about maintaining temporary peace, this this cheap peace, this illusion of peace, than finding an eternal, long-lasting peace. An example of this would be a Christian being buddy-buddy with an atheist, right? This is great. That's great. Jesus walked among sinners. It's perfect. But as these, as these people, this atheist and this Christian, uh, live together and, and build relationship together, they're building tolerance for one another, and they suppress and dismiss the fact that their core convictions are completely different. They don't have conversations about faith. They don't have any apologetic conversations. They're just surface level. Like, how you doing, man? Good. You want to go, go grab a beer? Sure. And that's where the conversation stays. They just get along. The Christian, like this is, this is a Christian's responsibility to be a peacemaker. But here, 
the Christian is obviously far more concerned with keeping the temporary peace than offering that atheist a peace that is found in the gospel. It'd be like being on mission without ever presenting the gospel. It's, it's an illusion of surface-level peace when there's a greater peace that is to be offered. And then, here it is on the environmental scope, when we try to sinfully find peace, sinfully try to maintain peace, we all have our own take on what this might look like. For some of us, for some of us, it's simply retirement. Like, I've worked so hard. Man, I've I've spent 40 years working hard. Now it's finally time to kick back, relax, get that condo on the beach, rest, relax, find some peace. Yeah, that's fine. Sure, go ahead. But that's not going to last long. You're not going to find very much peace in that when you find yourself in the hospital or bound in a nursing home for a long period of time. For those hippie tree hugger types out there, uh, peace might be saving the rainforest, saving the parks, cleaning up our parks. You know, that, that's cool. I, I, I'm all for it. I, I'm all for it. God gave us responsibility to renew the earth. I think that's great. But when you find your peace in it, it's devastating when someone litters, when someone throws their McDonald's wrapper out the, out the car. Your peace has been destroyed. And for others, you try, to, you try to escape from places of disaster. You try to find peace in running from those things. People move away from the East Coast to get away from the hurricanes only to find themselves in the, in the Midwest with blizzards and tornadoes. All of these things... All of those things that we do on the the vertical, the horizontal, and environmental scope are are cheap attempts at finding peace. And we find out, I hope, I hope that I've I've shown you how these are ineffective, how these things are temporary, how they're illusions, and what we're doing, what we're trying to do in our sin doesn't work. It never brings peace. So my question is to you. What are, you, what are you doing to try to find peace? What kind of man-made peace are you seeking? What lengths are you going to to maintain this illusion of peace? In what places are you settling for cheap peace? So then, you're probably wondering, Sam, what's the answer for this? What, what is it? What's the fix? What will, what will finally bring me this peace that I'm looking for? You want to know the answer? The answer is the same as it was nearly 3,000 years ago. The answer is Jesus. That ruler that Micah was talking about, in case you weren't picking up on it, that was Jesus. That, that was the ruler that the, the Israelites were longing for. And through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, shalom is made available to us. This is is a big concept. Jesus, Jesus is the only solution that will offer you complete shalom. He offers us peace in the vertical, the horizontal, and the environmental peace, the peace that we're longing for, the stuff that we desire, the stuff that our heart gravitates towards. And so we look ahead to Ephesians 2, what Paul is saying. He says, he says to us, remember. 
First words, remember. Remember what? Remember the death and decay. Remember the brokenness. Remember the lack of shalom that you had. Remember, he says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. And you were without God in this world. You had no hope. You had no joy. You had no love. And you had no peace without God. And you were in the world without Him. Remember that. And then much like the prophet Micah, there's this this cry of hope. And Paul says... Remember those, those things. Remember your fallen condition. But now, he says, but now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That you were once, you, you once were lived in chaos and death and decay. But now, now you've been brought near. You've been brought near to God. The sacrifice of Christ is the only thing that will suffice in reconciling us in every aspect, vertical, horizontally, and environmentally, with the earth. And this isn't a small deal. Like, Jesus isn't a small deal. This, isn't, this is nothing like the cheat piece that we're, that we're trying to, to find satisfaction in. Think about... Think about the great lengths in which Jesus went to give us, not to show us how to get, but to give us this peace. Okay? Jesus, from eternity past, had shalom within the Trinity. The Trinity always displayed shalom. And and even in the midst of the fallen world, this chaos that's going on, the death and decay of the world, the Trinity was still completely satisfied in and of itself. Alec told us that the Trinity was a happy God, that it was happy within itself. Jesus sacrificed that shalom. Can you imagine having perfectness, wholeness, and setting it aside for brokenness, death, and decay? Jesus left that shalom and came down. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus dwelt among us. He was flesh. He became flesh. Not because he owed it to us. Not because in order to to be satisfied, he needed to restore the earth back to himself. But he did it because God is full of grace and mercy. He didn't need to do it, right? He didn't need to do it. He was already happy. He already had shalom, but he did it anyway. Jesus experienced this death and decay that we experience on all levels. He became, he became very intimate with the reality of death and decay. For example, in, in the environmental sense, Jesus was a homeless, unemployed dude. That's difficult. Not to mention that he was at sea when a great storm came upon him. He, he felt what it was like for the earth to be in, in tension. He knew, Jesus knew what it was like to experience death and decay on the horizontal plane. 
He, he knew, he was very familiar with strained relationships. Places where he went to cast out demons, they would send him out. Like, we don't want you here. Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends. And not, not just like a little stab in the back, but literally betrayed and handed over by one of his closest friends. Then he was denied three times by another. He said, I don't even know Jesus. I don't know who you're talking about. Jesus? Who? Denied him three times. And then we see the manifestation of this hostility between man. As Jesus is stripped of his clothes, he's beaten, he's whipped, he's flogged, he has a crown of thorns pressed into his head. And he was hung on a cross. He was placed upon a cross. Nails pierced his hands and his feet. And he hung there suffocating. But he didn't do it for any crime that he had committed. He never offended anyone. Jesus lived the perfect life. He had never sinned against anyone. He had no reason for these people to be flogging him, to be beating him. But he knew what it was like. He experienced that death and decay on the horizontal front. And then on the cross, we see that Jesus knew what it was like to be separated from God. That Jesus, even during his ministry, he, he walked with God. He was intimate with God. He sought God out in prayer. And for the first time on the cross, rather than referring to God as Father, Jesus, Jesus feels the brokenness of the relationship. On the cross, all of man's sin, past, present, and future sin was placed upon Jesus. Jesus, there was so much sin placed upon him that Jesus, in fact, became sin. He became sin who knew no sin. Everything, Jesus became sin, which was everything that was preventing shalom in the holiest sense. Jesus became that. The very thing that got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden, the very thing that ruined Shalom in the first place, Jesus became that. And he cries out on the cross. He cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why are we broken? How come I can't feel this intimacy with you? Something is wrong here. Our Shalom has been broken. The babe, that baby, the babe whose birth we celebrate in a couple of days is the one who came to bring peace. He entered into this fallen world to bring with him peace, that he would be our peace. And it's interesting to me that, that this, this Advent season we've been going through, um, first week we did hope, the second week we did love, third week Alec preached on joy, and now we're preaching on peace. All of those things are characteristics of God, right? God is love, God is our joy, God is our hope, and He will be our peace. It's not so much that we're longing for peace, we're not so much longing for hope or joy or love, but we're longing for God. What Jesus offers us 
is not a quick fix. What he offers us is himself, his broken self. His broken, his dead yet resurrected body, he offers it to us so that we would find peace in him. It's certainly not anything like that cheap piece that we talked about earlier. It came at a very great expense. It came at the expense of Christ's own life. That, that, that God's only begotten son was removed from his presence. That he was beaten. That he was murdered. And he was mocked. And that, in, in that great expense, I hope you can see, I, I hope you can see the, the lengths in which Jesus went to to offer you this peace. He left perfectness, came into brokenness on purpose. Adam and Eve did it on accident. He did it on purpose. And it came at a great expense, yet God, God offers it to us for free. It's grace. God offers, God offers peace on his own account. That he was the one who, who found peace. He was the one who achieved peace and gave it to us. There's nothing that we can do to earn this peace. This is a gift. There is no man-made peace that will suffice for the gift that God has given us in himself. Jesus removed himself from shalom... He removed himself from the wholeness of God so that we could be brought into shalom. That we could get wrapped up in the Godhead. That we could could experience the fullness of God. The fullness that God offers us. And Jesus experienced death and decay on all accounts. He lived the perfect life. He took, took our sin and placed it upon him. He died the death that we deserve. And on the cross, we see, we see the manifestation of, of the hostility between man and God and the hostility between man and man. And it, and it comes to us in the form of the cross. And through that very same cross, peace is offered to us. That through the cross of Christ, Jesus offers us peace with God and peace with each other. And one day... He'll be giving us peace with our environment. Now, Ephesians 2, to jump back real quick, Ephesians 2 shows us what Jesus did, offers us shalom in the here and now, right? We live in a season of already not, but not yet. Like, Jesus has already come, and he's already inaugurated peace, but we still are waiting. We still don't have this fullness of peace. We have little glimpses of it, but we don't have the fullness of it. Jesus removes our hostility between us and God. He achieves that vertical peace. Jesus removes the hostility between man so that because we have been forgiven by God, we've been forgiven by the one who we have uh, committed offense against, that we may forgive one another. And we see at the end of Ephesians how Jesus is making us into, making us into the dwelling place for God. That, that here in this place where Jesus is making us, we will be secure. And so, like I said, we're in the time of already but not yet. So we look, up, we look forward to that time when we will be fully made into the dwelling place of God. We have shadows of this peace 
things that resemble the shape of what shalom will look like, but we don't have the substance yet. We don't fully have God. We, we don't experience God in the fullest sense in which he intended for us to. We don't have shalom. What we are longing for, this total shalom, this complete peace, will be delivered to us when the new heavens and the new earth make their dwelling place here. The new heavens and the new earth will be a better version of the garden where shalom will exist for eternity. There will, in, in the garden, there will be no more hurt. There will be no more oppression. There will be no more hostility between man and God or between man and man. All of that will be removed. In, in the new heavens, new earth, vertical, horizontal, environmental peace will be fully functioning. Everything will be functioning perfectly. It'll be like that, that knitted sweater. And in the new heavens, new earth, there will be no more sin. There will be no more temptation. There will be no more need for repentance. There will be no more longing. No more longing. What we're longing for, finding God, we will no longer be longing for it because we have it. There won't be a need. Oh, there won't be a need for faith because, because God will be right in front of us. That God will be dwelling with us. That, that what we once uh, put our faith in the unseen is now right in front of us, dwelling with us. And so that is what this Advent season is about. We look back to the birth of Christ. We look back to see how the Israelites were longing for this ruler. And since we live between the cross and the future gl- glory, we celebrate Jesus' birth. But at the same time, we look ahead. We look ahead to the future glory. We're longing for the day in which Jesus, being the cornerstone himself, will build us into the dwelling place of God. That is what this season's about. Remembering and waiting. Like I said before, God isn't offering a quick, quick fix to peace here. He isn't offering a 10-step program to find peace. He isn't offering you the newest, latest in book on how to find peace. What he's offering you is himself. He's offering you himself in the form of his son. The son that left shalom, perfect wholeness, and came to the broken earth. He came and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. The life that if we could have lived, we would have had some sort of shalom. But we can't. And he died the death that we deserved. He's offering himself in form of his son. The one who intimately knew death and decay so that you could be offered wholeness and shalom. And some of you, some of you are tired of chasing down peace. Some of you are tired of of trying the next thing, the, the next best thing. Some of you have given up altogether. You just lost hope in it. And there's, there, there, and I'm convinced all of us have been trying to pursue peace in either religiousness or rebellion. Now, whether this is your first time hearing about peace today, hearing about the peace in which Jesus offers you through his gospel, through his sacrifice, or if this is something you've heard for the thousandth, ten thousandth, twenty-five thousandth time, God is still offering you the same thing. He's offering you his gospel. 
his gospel of peace. And you, today, you have an opportunity. You have the opportunity to respond in faith and repentance. You can receive the faith that God has given you and trust that, the, that, that God's peace, that his shalom is sufficient, that Jesus, in atoning for our sins and dying for our sins and making things right, that that is sufficient for you to find peace. After all, Scripture tells us that this is the, this is the peace that surpasses all understanding. This, this peace doesn't really make sense. If you were to look at it from a logical viewpoint, this, this peace that God offers us doesn't make sense. Because the reality is we're still sinners. We're still sinners uh, amidst a world of, of fallenness, of toil and trouble. But we, for some reason, we still have we, we've found peace in Christ himself. And you have an opportunity to repent over the places in which you have gone to to find peace. The places in which you've, you've had cheap peace or man-made peace. You have an opportunity to repent over those things, turn in faith to God, and accept the gift of peace that Christ offers you. My prayer, I, I, I hope, th- this is the one thing that I want, want you to take away. That My prayer for this is that you will be so, con- so discontent with this cheap peace that you filled your life with, this cheap peace that you've been holding on to, my prayer is that you would let it go, that you would let go of those cheap substitutions and cling to the peace that God offers you through his gospel. This is the gospel of peace. And this morning, we come to the table. It's, it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to remember Remember that Christ was broken for us. As, we, as the bread is broken, as, as the blood was spilled, as we dip the, bl- the, the bread into the wine, we remember what great lengths Christ went to to achieve peace for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God. I thank you, God, that you did not leave us in death and decay. I thank you, that you didn't leave us to our own devices. I thank you that that you have um, rustled up our feathers enough to know that these places of cheap peace aren't adequate. Father God, I I pray that this peace, this peace that you offer us through Jesus, be sweet. Oh God, that it would be a, a, a foreshadow, a, a symbol of what it would be like to live with you, to dwell among you, to, for, for you to be our God and us to be your people. God, I thank you for the lengths in which Christ went to to offer us this peace. Lord God, I pray that you would stir up within us, your spirit would stir up within us faith and repentance. Lord God, to repent of our old ways of cheap peace and find the fullness of peace in you, God, that you would be our peace. God, it's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.